In the 50s, when racial segregation was normal, when mistreating people of color and treating them as less than was normal, it was painful, but it's all we knew. Today, when you have so much more evidence of equity, so much more evidence of, the, of people making equity an issue, of organizations committed to it, and you're seeing tangible evidence of representation and leadership and representation in high professional ranks, it actually makes the gap more painful. Because when our psyches have to live in the cognitive dissonance of two different worlds, of it's much more fair and it's still unfair, it's more painful. And so we actually feel the gap more intensely, even though technically the gap is smaller than it was 40 years ago, it feels actually bigger because the way our brains process that is that, well, if we made this progress, why didn't we make this progress? If we ended this, why is this still a problem? Those are great questions. And sometimes they don't make sense. And so the unfortunate conclusion many white people draw is, well, this is as good as it can get. And can't they just be thankful for how far we've come? Rather than saying no, it just means this last part of the gap that isn't closed yet is much harder to close because they're rooted in such systemic, entrenched systems that keep those parts of the gap in place. And it wasn't that the rest of it was low-hanging fruit. It came at a huge cost. But the cost to close the gap we've closed so far came on the backs of Black people. The rest of it has to come on the backs of white people. Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck, a podcast about, well, that. We've paused our regular podcast episodes to produce this 10-part mini-series called White Men and the Journey Towards Anti-Racism. While you can listen to the episodes in any order, if you're joining us in the midst of this adventure, I invite you to check out episode 54 of our podcast, where my co-host Lauren Ruffin and I introduce the series and frame these conversations. All of the episodes, as well as a whole host of amazing resources on the topic not by white guys, can be found on workshouldsuck.co. In this series, we're talking with a variety of white guys who are personally and professionally engaged in anti-racism work. When asked, they each define the work in slightly different ways. Some articulate it as anti-racism or anti-oppression work. Others say they approach it more through a justice lens. Others, inclusion and belonging. Still others, equity and impact. Through these conversations, we'll explore the moments that led each of them to do this work, including their initial realizations that this was work for white guys to be doing. We'll discuss what's been most impactful and resonant to them in the journey, what's been most challenging, and since this is a podcast about the workplace, we'll discuss how this work shows up in the organizations they lead and the ones they work with. On today's conversation, I'm joined by Ron Carucci, co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, a firm that works with CEOs and executives who are pursuing transformational change for their organizations and industries. You can read more about Ron in his bio that's included in the episode description. So in the interest of time, let's get going. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tim, how are you? It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. This is awesome. Before we really get into things, how do you typically introduce yourself and the work that you do? I typically tell people that my firm and I get the privilege of accompanying senior leaders of organizations on the messy journey of transformation. That as they're about to embark on expeditions to bring their organizations to a different place or out of a bad place, that our job is to be the Sherpa. Our job is to sort of architect the journey and architect the path that gets them where they want to go and doesn't get them stuck somewhere or gets them there in a way that doesn't have regression you know, a year later because it actually sticks. 
So the past two years have thrown a lot of curveballs and we're living with a lot of uncertainty. So what does that look like with the work that you're doing? You know, we've been very fortunate, Tim, that so much of what, and I would have never guessed this, so much of how we do our work translated to virtual worlds. I would have never imagined some of the really intense organization design work that we do being able to be done virtually, but we've done just fine. I think leaders have asked for more help. I think some of the uncertainties they're facing, some of their own limitations, which I don't think COVID caused, I think COVID just revealed those limitations and, and how they engage people in all kinds of complex messes that they never had to, at least never believed they had to worry about before. And suddenly they're, you know, they're, they're in their people's living rooms and bedrooms and you know, suddenly their personal life is very relevant. And there's all kinds of mushier and blurrier boundaries now, and leaders don't always know how to navigate those well. So they've been asking for a lot more help. Well, with the topic we're talking about today, I think this is one of the really exciting things about this uncertainty in which we're living, because it causes people not to go on cruise control, but you have to really be intentional about how are you building these policies, how are you building the practices while centering anti-racism or racism, oppression, justice, equity. As you think about your own personal journey and professional work, what are the lenses you use? Because to describe the work, anti-racism, anti-oppression, justice, how do you typically frame it for yourself? Well, I think uh, fairness is typically a word that gets overused a lot. But in my new book, I talk a lot about justice. And organizational injustice isn't new. They're everywhere, hiding in plain sight. Certainly, just injustices aimed at, aimed at people of certain identities, you know, the people of color or gender. But there are unlevel playing fields everywhere. And the reality is, if you are willing to allow unlevel playing fields to exist, it means they exist for everybody. So you either have to decide you want a fair and just and purposeful organization, or you don't. You can't have it fair for some people, or fair for when it's convenient for you to make it fair, and then leave it to be unfair out of your sight. Whenever I have to introduce the concept, for example, of privilege, rather than go down the identity privilege issues that people get all kinds of weird about, I'll simply say, if you're in a tech company, if I talk to your engineers, are they going to say they're privileged? If I talk to everybody else, are they going to say the engineers are privileged? If I'm in a high growth company, what are people going to say about your salespeople? If I'm in a brand company, what are people going to say about your marketers? You have privileged roles. It's perfectly fine to acknowledge that not all work is created equal and not all work is of the same value, but all humans are. And when, when the value of your work suddenly becomes equated to the value of you as a human, you've unleveled the playing field. And what we now know is that when you remove dignity, and justice from how people contribute, you set the stage for really bad behavior. So it's not a far cry then to say, well, if you have roles that are privileged, I bet there are certain people that are privileged. What do I make of the fact that your entire executive team is mostly white men with one token woman in leading HR? What do I make of representations? You know, and you can tout all your diversity inclusion stats you want about all your what your goals are and what you're trying to accomplish and tell me how difficult finding the candidates are, blah, 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 blah. But if it were that important to you, you'd figure out a way. Last year, when you struggled to get that product launched and all of a sudden, you know, you were four weeks from a deadline that you weren't going to make, suddenly, mysteriously, the entire organization came out in full force and was able to solve the problem. What if you treated your representation issue the same way? Because you believed it was just as urgent. Bet you'd figure it out. How are those statements typically meant by what I imagine are a lot of white leaders? No, but I don't get a lot of pushback. I don't, sometimes I'll get the very tacit, passive-aggressive, well, you don't really understand what it's like for us kind of thing. They want to play the victim card. But nobody would ever say that to me directly because they know, they know where it would go. But I think most people believe it. I think there are leaders 
who generally do care. I think the problem is too many executives believe that their good intentions count. That's somehow because I intend for it to be fair. I don't intend for it to be discriminatory or biased. I don't intend for people of underrepresented identities have work suck for them. If work shouldn't suck, it shouldn't suck for anyone. You can't just say work shouldn't suck for most people because now you're by default declaring that you don't really care if it sucks as long as it doesn't suck for you. I think that's one of the things in my own personal journey that I realized around good intentions and around doing good by being good. And then as I started to learn as a white guy, in particular as a white male leader with power and privilege, that a lot of those good intentions, a lot of those things that I thought were like, this is a great policy for the organization. This is a great, great office renovation. Who wouldn't like this? And realize, oh, right, there's a lot of people who are being left out by this. And then sitting with that discomfort of like something that I really believed in, really feel like was great, but then realizing that wasn't necessarily the case. And in particular, looking, reading Tamo Kuhn's Characteristics of White Supremacy Culture and looking through those lenses at our, our work really brings it home and has really uncomfortable to sit with those and, and realize this thing that we built that we're really proud of is not all that great for everyone. Well, that we, and we were so, we were so convinced was rooted in meritocracy. We're so convinced was rooted in fairness and creating opportunity for everybody and never bothered to interrogate those assumptions in ways that didn't account for our white male perspective on it. Speaking of white male perspectives and the characteristics of white supremacy culture, you mentioned your new book. The new book is To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Full disclosure here, as you know, I, I'm reading it. I've not finished it, so no spoilers here. But I, as I, I was starting to read it, as I was starting to reflect on my own writing and some of the things as I teach leadership and team building, sometimes I'm like, whoa, that didn't age well. Or, oh, if you apply that lens to this, if you apply an anti-racism, anti-oppression lens to this really great case study, it all falls apart. I'm curious, as you were writing this, really spending a lot of time, years of research on this, as you looked at the case studies you're using, the examples that were in the book, and reflected on these characteristics of white supremacy culture that are often baked into the DNA of the organizations that, that we're in, that we're studying, how did that influence how you went about writing the book, understanding your findings, and, and the direction of it all? A couple of ways. One, I was very intentional about centering Black voices in the book. I made sure that I had those perspectives built into my work. Because the book is a book of heroes, there's plenty of villain stories out there for integrity breaches or ethical lapses. We, we don't need to hear any more Toronto stories or Wells Fargo stories or Volkswagen stories. I wanted to write about the leaders and organizations who were modeling things we could emulate, who we'd all be proud to have as bosses. That's what this book is about. And I chose people who I knew were committed to equity and fairness. I chose case studies of companies who I knew were doing good things for communities in which they served, were multi-stakeholder focused, were committed to racial and gender and all versions of equity that we need to think about. So I was pretty intentional about that. When it comes to centering Black voices, I, I give myself a B. I could have done a little better, but there are quite a few well-positioned, experienced Black experts and leaders in the book whose stories were remarkable, whose voices were very shaping of my, of my thinking and, and of the book. We also did a TV series. During all the interviews, I, I was very intentional about recording them so that we could later turn them into a series. And in that TV series, it's called, it's called Moments of Truth. You can find it on Roku, or you can find it at the website. All, the, all 15 episodes are at the website, tobehonest.net. I did multiple segments. So I didn't, I didn't want the, 
to be all about me. So I intentionally chose two co-hosts, one of whom is a, a black man. And I had another guy in my firm do a segment called Everyday Justice. And so they each did segments on justice and finding your voice to a variety of guests. So I, I intentionally broadened the lens through which we were seeing this beyond just my own. Is this different than how you approached previous projects, previous books? Dramatically, dramatically. I mean, sadly, I don't know that I would have given it a thought or have known to give. I mean, I, I was sort of numb. I, I would say Rising to Power, the last book, which was seven years ago, we were very focused on a specific type of marginalization, a, tip, a typical type of leadership failure, very, very centered on the research we've done that. That was the 10-year mark of our, our data on leaders who are failing on the way up. And there were some factors we, did, we disclosed around marginalization or identity privilege in there, but it wasn't, it was because the research found them. It wasn't because we went looking for them. In this case, I was particularly intentional about wanting to make sure that the lens of justice shone on organizations in ways that whatever you believe a microaggression is or whatever you believe your own good intentions are, I wanted you to recognize that you can be better. I think that was probably the biggest finding, one of the biggest findings of the research is that honesty isn't a character trait. It's not some moral set of principles. It's a muscle. It's a capability you're either good at or need to be better at. And for the people who, who say to me, well, I'm kind of really, for the most part, already an honest person, so I don't, I guess the book isn't for me, to whom I say, then it's mostly for you. The person who believes they've arrived, who thinks they're honest enough, is the person most likely to be impacted by what I learned. And that was me. I thought, well, I'm a good guy. I'm honest. I'm straightforward. What? Sure. Do I have moments that I'm not my best version of myself? But of course, I, as a white guy, I can dismiss those and have them hide in some vague place because my halo outshines them. But the reality is that we all have moments where we're not our best versions of ourselves. And someone has to pay a price for that. And we often don't calculate those consequences very well. What did that look like in practice and reality what for those moments for you oh you know so mo moments where we all embellish what i embellish you know embellish information or withhold information i think someone doesn't need to hear right now or when i'm a little bit short with the barista at starbucks or when my white male entitlement comes screaming out in a drive-through lane or sitting in traffic or in an airport where i'm you know wanting to get, get in line i think now more than ever i'm just so conscious of privilege of mine you know i know guilt and shame is not a helpful response to that and finding ways to be generous and share those privileges is really what i need to do which i'm not always that good at i have to sort of work a lot harder to figure out what those moments are but i have become much more attuned to others to how when, whenever i'm in the presence of a person of color how, how do i respond how do i participate how do i center them how do i respect show them respect i have clients who are people of color? How, what do I do to make sure they know my goal is intentions to be an ally, even if I fall short on that? It's just so much more of a consciousness now, not that I've arrived at any place or that I'm good at any of it, but I'm just aware when I wasn't before. This is generational work and yeah. the lifetime and the, the arrival is just to learn that well, we've got so much more to go. Like you, yeah. you make some progress and you just realize, oh, there it's so so much more. What has this personal journey been like for you to get to a place where there's two white guys on a podcast talking about race and racism and what this means to us in, in the workplace? Gosh, it's been so rewarding, Tim. When I first discovered white men for racial justice through the research for to be honest, 
you know, people that I interviewed in the book introduced me to Jay. To that point in my life, I felt alone and isolated. I felt like, am I the only crazy white guy that thinks this is really important? My convictions about justice, especially racial justice, are born deeply from my own values and my own faith. That justice is a deeply important expression of those values and that faith. Brian Stevenson's work has been, you know, foundational in my life. When people say, who's your hero? He's who I say. Most people in the white community who would share those convictions did it in a chair from a charitable point of view, you know, so that pity kind of thing, not some deep conviction that we were all part of the problem. And so I was always, it was always this very awkward discomfort for me, but I felt very isolated and that I didn't have a whole lot of places to talk about it. So when I found white men for racial justice, it was like a homecoming for me, this place of, oh my gosh, I'm not by myself here. I'm not crazy. What I'm seeing really is a problem and we can do things about it. I was fairly confident that there was a lot, you know, the pile of what, I don't know what I don't know was large. I didn't really know how large it was, but I discovered that it was far more extensive than I even thought. But the education has been profoundly transformational for me. It has given me tremendous hope. I know that there's lots of places in the world we still suck at this, but my gosh, it has given me tremendous hope that if you know 60 white guys can come together every week and talk about this, and are eager to find ways to incorporate it in their own life and can, even with our own circle, make the world a little bit better, a little bit more brighter, a little more hopeful for the people of color we interact with, that's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that there isn't extensive distances to to still travel, but every inch of ground we gain is worth it. Let's talk a little bit about how this shows up in the organization, in in Navalin. As a leader, as a white guy doing this work personally, you also work at an organization and leading an organization. What does that work look like? So there are three managing partners. Three of us own Navalent. And all of us come from a deeply values and principled center place in life. So the pro bono clients we take on, like, for example, Black Lives Matter, one of the, the Boston chapter is a pro bono client of ours, which has been incredibly formative for me. From that have come a couple of executive coaching pro bono projects. All of our pro bono clients and places we both give our profit to, as well as our time to, are places of people who are marginalized, who have been cast aside, whether it's racial issues or victims of you've been trafficking. As a firm, there's a deep sense of values and principles around giving back in the firm. So it's not weird at all. We all support each other in, that, in those endeavors, whether they're collective as a group or individual. Every year, we give a good chunk of our profits away to charity. So this, this year, it went to Equal Justice Initiative. As a community, it's sort of part of who we are. It doesn't isn't weird at all. People, I think, are happy and supportive of each of our individual and our collective efforts to to do our small part in you know making making those marginalized worlds a little bit better for those people. I had a session that I led maybe about a year ago or so. I'm talking about the work that we were doing at Fractured Atlas, the organization that was a co CEO of the anti racism work that we, we were doing, and. At the end of the session, it was for mainly a bunch of white guys. And someone said, you know, that was all great, but like, could you like talk about some tangible things that you've done? And I, I got to the end of like, oh God, I'm like, the whole thing was tangible examples. And then it's like, where have I failed this? Where have I failed this group? And so I came back to the office and I was talking with my colleague, Courtney Harsh, who's now the CEO of the organization, wonderful organization called Of By For All. And I was like sort of recounting this to her. And she said, I think people confuse tangible with impactful and impactful with visible. 
And she went on to say, adding pronouns to an email is tangible. Ending gender discrimination is impactful. And increasing gender diversity at an organization is visible. As you think about the work, I mean, approach at, at Navalent in sort of these different distinctions, what resonates with, with you? Well, I think the, the, it's easy for us to sort of put those in a hierarchy as though you, you should aspire to go from tangible to impactful to visible. And I think that would be a dangerous thing to do. You have opportunities to do any number of those things in your path every day. The question I, I would ask people is when those opportunities exist. As an example, I may, if I see a microaggression happen, and this happened to me in a bank, I was walking into the bank and ahead of me was a black man. And I noticed the woman at the little greeter lady at the door was saying, hi, so do you have an account with us? And he said, yeah, I do. And he, he, she showed him to the front of the line. I went in, she said, hi. And I could see his shoulder slump and I could feel the, my neck getting red. And I was, thought, okay, if I just, if I say something to her now, it's not going to go well. So I'll just give it a minute. I walked up to that black guy and I said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I think he was surprised that I noticed and he didn't say anything. He just nodded in his head. And afterwards, I went, I went to the manager and I said, hey, I'm sure she meant well. She probably doesn't even realize she did it. But here's what happened. And I'd like for you to say something to her. It'll be better coming from you than it will from me. Now, you could say that was a tangible thing. But for that black eye, that could have been impactful. And for that bank, it could have been visible if, in fact, she stopped doing that. How do you measure that, right? I think a lot of white people especially struggle with the notion of, because their comparative lens is so bizarre, right? So we, can, we want to compare things today to the 50s and think, well, look at all the, pro I mean, how could you say we haven't made any progress? How could you, look at what, you know, we're not housing people. That's all true. If you if you're comparative, and certainly if you can compare to lenses to 250 years ago when Lincoln signed the document, my gosh, it's night and day. Well, actually, it's not. Sure, you can point to very tangible, impactful, and visible progress societally in the last 50 years, in the last 200 years. That's interesting. That does not discount. What people don't, people don't understand, Tim, is that in, in the evolution of long tales of change, we're actually at a more painful moment than we, than we were in the 50s. In the 50s, when racial segregation was normal, when mistreating people of color and treating them as less than was normal, it was painful, but it's all we knew. Today, when you have so much more evidence of equity, so much more evidence of, the, of people making equity an issue, of organizations committed to it, and you're seeing tangible evidence of representation and leadership and representation in high professional ranks, it actually makes the gap more painful. Because when, you, when, when our psyches have to live in the cognitive dissonance of two different worlds, of it's much more fair and it's still unfair, it's more painful. And so we actually feel the gap more intensely, even though technically the gap is smaller than it was 40 years ago, it feels actually bigger because the way our brains process that is that, well, if we made this progress, why didn't we make this progress? If we ended this, why is this still a problem? Those are great questions. And sometimes they don't make sense. And so the unfortunate conclusion many white people draw is, well, this is as good as it can get. And can't they just be thankful for how far we've come? Rather than saying no, it just means this last part of the gap that isn't closed yet is much harder to close because they're rooted in such systemic, entrenched 
systems that keep those parts of the gap in place. And it wasn't that the rest of it was low-hanging fruit. It came at a huge cost. But the cost to close the gap we've closed so far came on the backs of Black people. The rest of it has to come on the backs of white people. What does that look like? What, how, what's the- hey, everyone. It's Tim. I want to take a quick break from our conversation to share some really exciting news with you. We spend a lot of time on this podcast discussing how to create inclusive, equitable, thriving anti-racist workplaces. About a year ago, my colleagues Courtney Harge and Nicola Carpenter even taught a course about an important piece of this work, race-based caucusing. And here's the exciting part. We just released an online version of that popular course. If you're listening to this podcast and wondering, how do you actually create an anti-racist workplace? This course is for you. If you're curious about what race-based caucusing in the workplace is, what it isn't, how to get it started, how to keep it going, this course is for you. Courtney and Nicola share their insights from having done this work together for years. They share their templates, their practical strategies, and actionable advice to help you succeed in implementing this in your workplace. Whether you're an HR professional or a team leader, consultant or educator, CEO, or really any role in the organization who is ready to invest time and energy into creating a more inclusive and understanding workplace, join the course and learn how this tool can be a part of the change towards more equitable, thriving futures. Head over to bit.ly backslash caucus course to check it out now. And be sure to use the code caucus50 at checkout for $50 off the price. Now, let's get back to the conversation. The next piece of that. Where you stand depends on where you sit. I think in the workplace, we've got to translate our, all of our George Floyd era statements of, I won't tolerate, I won't tolerate, whatever, into, okay, then will you go out and root out privilege in your organization, wherever it exists? Appointing a chief equity officer is interesting. Will you make that part of your strategy? When you see microaggressions happen right in front of you, will you be brave enough to make sure somebody says something or that you open your mouth? When you look at your recruiting policies, your promotion policies, when you look at how, I mean, look at governance, where, how do you allocate resources? Who's invited to what meetings? Whose voices are heard? How do you treat, you know, when you're, when you're on the hunt for, I want a diverse candidate in the job. Do you want a diverse candidate because it checks the box off and it, it, you, you get to, you know, you get to be a clip art? Or is it because you believe that they are the most qualified candidate, but when you hold up their underrepresented demographic to others, it's actually like an extra line item on a resume. It's like an extra advanced degree because they bring that point of view and you realize it will make the work much richer, which is it. Because if it's check a box off, you're going to set them up to fail. It's a constant continuing to dig deeper into ourselves, Tim. Yes, in our systems. My gosh, if in our generation, we could at least see some significant dent in the prison industrial complex. I think if we could, for me, at the core of one of the biggest systemic evidence of racism is for-profit prisons whose quotas are filled by policemen who are probably in some way benefiting from the gain of that because some of that money goes back to local municipalities and law enforcements. We've entrenched this system of making sure we fill cells with Black people. And so if we could just end that some way, and I don't know that that it would require deprivatizing the prisons, but it certainly requires disincenting them being full. That, that to me would be like a, 
massive cut of the, like a the femoral artery of racism. Those are the places I think we have to lean in harder. I think in the workplace, we have the luxury of, of a credible amount of resources, a mandate so from society, and a workforce that's becoming less and less tolerant of the crap that they've seen, of inequity, of injustice. And you know, today we're seeing them vote with their feet. I would think that the business world, who, who can also be an incredible beacon of change in other parts of society, would be the place where we have the, the greatest frontier on which to continue to produce change because we have the resources and the brains and the expectation to do it. And we're now creating these jobs called chief equity officers, uh, people who presumably we're hiring to help us do it. I'm writing a piece, and I don't know if it's going to be published by the time these episodes go live. The question is, does your organization need a chief whiteness officer? <laughs> As a starting place before you can even get to chief diversity officers, chief equity officers, but like what predominantly white organizations are often trying to do is they need to wrestle with their whiteness before they can even get to the next steps. The questions are like, what, what is it that we're trying to quote unquote solve for in, in hiring and getting to your, your point about like, of uncovering, like what, what are you actually trying to do here? And is that in line with just window dressing or is it like deeply held beliefs? Because one's going to be much more successful than, than the other. Well, I, I think until we get off the representation as an end versus as a means to an end, it won't change. And I think the cruel thing is, Tim, we set people of color up to fail when they check a box for us to make us look like the clip art. And it by no means actually represents diverse thinking. I did a work for a client a couple of years ago, so women's care products. And I mean, talk about the clip art. Her, her executive team, female CEO, she had black, Asian, LGBTQ, Hispanic. I mean, it was, she had like one of everybody. And, they, and this company prided themselves on a diversity metrics and a diversity commitment. And I was in their executive team meeting for a day and a half. And by the three quarters of the way through the first day, I said, I'm sorry to tell you some bad news here, but there's not an ounce of diversity in this room. And of course, they were all defensive and shocked. And I said, let me just go back to the tramp. Let me just play it, rewind my tape here. And here are four moments in your conversation where you stumbled upon conflict, stumbled upon places where there were some real tensions. And here's what you said. Let's take this offline. I don't think we have enough data for that. Let's just defer this to the next meeting. That's probably not a conversation for today's. You, in each of the four times you punted, what that's telling me is that heterogeneous was really your goal, not homogeneity. So what is it? Is it you want to look diverse or you want to actually be diverse? But right now, you, you are all one thing. And what I would ask each of you to think about is, what did you edit? In the moments where that tension came up, what did you wish you could say that you didn't? Because when it comes out of your mouth and you freely exchange beneath this cosmetic illusion of diversity, what you really think, that's when you know you're diverse. The question you have to really ask yourself is, is it actually there? Or in fact, did you create a groupthink filter here so strong that you really are all the same? Earlier in my career, I was a part of a 10-person leadership team, all white. And it, it actually, part of this anecdote led to training as a mediator because I was reading about traits of high-performing teams and, you know, Healthy conflict is, is one of those things that's on the classic list. And I was realizing that our team was not getting better at having healthy conflict, engaging in it. They're getting better due to, I think, the team you're describing at knowing what would lead to conflict and avoiding it. This was as we were starting to talk about racism and oppression and privilege in the workplace and realize that 
that team in that configuration without the ability to have have those conversations wouldn't be successful in in a commitment that was going to at least for the white people include a lot of really uncomfortable conversations when when you talk to teams like that what's your advice what's your next step that you would you would engage them in the first thing i do typically I put up on the whiteboard a bunch of language and i say here's the two, here's the two things i think one of the reasons i think we're not making progress tim in, in, the, in the racial or the r- systemic racism part of the conversation is we lack two really fundamental ingredients, skill and language. And so we have all these shortcut words, white fragility, white supremacy, Marxism, revolutionary, radicalization. And so they're all trigger words and they all are shortcut for so much that they shut conversations down. So I tell people, we're going to have a conversation about racial equity right now. Here's the f- 20 words you cannot use. So you have to do long form division and own your discourse and explain what you actually mean. And it really disarms the room because now I don't have to worry about being triggered by a word that I don't even understand in the first place anyway. Most people have no idea what those words mean, but they've made meaning of them or they've had some part of their echo chamber on social media make meaning of it for them. And so when people have to sort of explain what they feel, what they see, what they think, why they think it, it suddenly changes the conversation because now it's personalized, it's vulnerable, and I have to bumble through it. I have to sort of stumble my way through something that I don't really have a lot of understanding of. I, I know I have a point of view. I have convictions. I have thoughts. I can't go quote my own source in the room because now it becomes me versus you and your source versus my source. So we just have these dueling binaries that just become a tug of war. And nobody has to hear anybody. Nobody has to listen. So I find when I take all that language off the table and I slow the conversation down and I make it one question at a time, where have you seen evidence of things being unfair or people of color being mistreated in ways you felt were unjust? When people ask you why you aren't someone who disparages others for their skin color or looks down on them, what evidence in your own life do you typically produce? I have friends who are. I grew up in a way that... You have evidence, and you believe that's all evidence of your innocence in this. I find that if you, if you sort of put some guardrails around the conversation and you take away some of the limitations of it, you try to speak a foreign language here, and you're, not, you're barely conversational, you're not fluent. So we're going to bumble through this together. You level the playing field a little bit. I also find that, interestingly enough, white people are better behaved when they're with people of color than when they're on their own. And so sometimes they're more, it's because they're more cautious. Even, and even when they slip up and say stupid things, they're a little bit more owning of those. So I find the eggshelliness of that a little bit of an asset. Because when they were just with white people, it becomes a venting session. They don't appreciate, you know, I had to work for everything. I all that white privilege stuff that they don't even realize that they're saying. We've got to get better language. We've just got to get better language and stop looking for shortcuts. We don't have to have a two-word phrase that describes a concept that's 400 years old. With all due respect to Miss um, D'Angelo for her book, the word white fragility hasn't helped us help white people see their own sensitivities to the conversation. White supremacy, unfortunately, has not helped us see the privilege we have. We think, oh, well, I don't wear a white pointy hat. I don't burn crosses. What, what does this have to do with me? So we just have these concepts and language that are just not helping us. It doesn't make them untrue or make them irrelevant. It just makes them unhelpful. It's a really great exercise and really great frame. And I think that slowing down, it feels like 
kind of like what's happening with the pandemic through which we're living. It's causing us to have to think about things differently than we like. We wouldn't have given it much thought. It's like you just go into a conference room, you do that thing, and then everyone leaves, or you like do that thing, but like, okay, we can't do that thing. We have to try something else. And it's giving us that opportunity to say, like, all right, how can we co create that in a way that works for everyone? I guess it's one of the positives of a global pandemic as it relates to this work, but I, I, re- I really love that exercise. Have you included all of the words publicly someplace if people have that, or you you would recommend people create that for themselves? It's not with all the obvious ones. Sometimes it's even fun to just sort of start, start the conversation with, what's, what are all the words and language that have caused you to, to have derailed you in this conversation? And then you add the ones and they, they leave out. But usually it's about 30, 30 or 35 terms or phrases or words. And it's amazing how, much, how, hard, how hard it actually is, how much it reveals. We really don't know what we're talking about here. My gosh, I had a debate with somebody very, very close to me in my life about critical race theory. And I said, well, have you read it? Have you read the original papers? Well, no, but so-and-so said, okay, well, just so you know, it doesn't say that. You can think of it what you want. And oh, by the way, just in case you wondered, there's not any evidence of any school in the United States, K through 12, trying to teach that material. It's a college level content. So just in case you're wondering why they're, they're protesting outside the middle school, there's no evidence of critical race theory there. If you ever like to actually go read what the, what the theory actually says and come back and talk about it, I'd welcome the chance to do that. It doesn't say, let's make all white children feel bad for being white, in case you wondered. Well, that's further difficult, too, when it turns into an acronym, you know, CRT or, or DEI or JEDI, rather than like, these are four different things. Justice, equity, diversity, inclusion are four really different things. And we do a disservice by lumping them into an acronym and just using that. I think the neuroscience gives us great clues into that, into why that is, Tim. Our, our brains are miserly organs. They are very lazy. They, do, they will process as minimal amount of information as they have to. What our brains do is they look for shortcuts. The neuropathways of our frontal lobe that process information are looking for ways to rinse and repeat. It's the, the classic explanation of why you can drive to work and not remember how you got there. Our brains create templates. They create frames to say, this is how you explain that. And so every time you see it, you explain it the same way, whether it's true or not. Our brains look for shortcuts. That's the definition of bias. A bias is a template. It's nothing more than ability for your brain to explain something so that you don't have to actually work hard to think it through. Oh, black person in a hoodie? Dangerous. Walk the other way, right? So your amygdala kicks in, off you go. And those biases often exist at unconscious levels, thus the word unconscious bias, but nothing more than compass headings. It's like your brain's GPS. And if you don't take the time to interrogate those directions that your brain is giving you to say, what assumptions is this based on? Where did I learn this? Because it's all learned. They don't come installed in your brain. You install them. They're all aftermarket add-ons. If you don't interrogate, people think, I'm not biased. Well, okay. I can prove that you are. One of my favorite exercises to do with people is it comes from, a, from classic behavioral science research in the 60s. But you basically... So how people write down the names of five people that they, they, they work very closely with. You know, two or three that they're really, really close with and one or two that they're less close with. And take those five names and put them in every combination of groups of three you can. So if you give them A, B, C, D, E, it's A, B, C, C, D, E, A, B, E, every combination of trio. And then you have right to have them write all the names out. And you say, go through every trio and circle the names of, in that trio, the two people who are most alike. Just do it. And they go through and circle all their names. And then I say, great. 
Now I want you to go back through that list and decode what criteria are you using to determine a likeness? And then you watch the color drain from their face as they realize, oh my gosh. And sometimes it's really overt, like it was gender or it was, it was race. For me, the first time I did it, it was intellectual snobbery. I, I picked the people who I thought were the smartest. I'm like, oh my God, I'm an intellectual snob. All of a sudden people realize, oh my gosh, I have yardsticks that I, have, I, I walk around with and I hold them up all the time. And I measure and I collect data. And I collect data that proves my, my yardstick is right. That's the definition of bias. So, so now when you tell me you're not biased, you can just say, except for that, except for this exercise right here, where you clearly are walking around screening everybody around you through those same lenses. And you have to decide one day, are those lenses A, sufficient, B, accurate, or C, based on assumptions that may or may not be helpful to the relationships you're trying to build with them. Ron, I could chat with you for much longer, but our time is coming to an end. As we prepare to land the plane, where do you want to land it? I hope that your listeners, especially for my, my white male peers out there, I hope as you think about 2022 and the year ahead, if you could just be a little bit curious, I'm not asking you to become a convicted anti-racist zealot. In fact, a lot of people have asked us not to do that. <laughs> but I'm asking you to just be a little bit curious. What is it that I've learned in my life that I'm not, I may not be aware that I learned? Just listen to one episode of the Seeing White podcast. Just Read one article. There's a fabulous article. If you find it on LinkedIn, it was undoing for me. I, I sobbed. It's called Reflections from the Token Black Friend. And it's a probably a 12-minute read. But it changed me. Just get curious. I'm not asking you to change your life. I'm not asking you to sort of throw away white friends and go replace them with black friends. I'm simply saying, could you just wonder a little bit about what life is like for people who aren't white? Have you ever walked into a store, what would it be like if all the faces on all the products were black? When's the last time you were in a room of people where you really were the only one like you? Well, you maybe it was in a foreign country where everybody spoke a different language, or you were in a room, if you're a guy, you were in a room for a lot of women, or you're a guy, you walked into the women's room by accident. You know, think about the moment you were someplace you were really other. And I want you to bring to mind that temporal ill at ease, discomfort you felt. And of course, you, I'm sure you quickly corrected and got out of there. But I want you to imagine what it would be like to live your life with that feeling 24-7. What would you do? Now, you would say, well, I'm a white guy. I, I, I wouldn't climb the walls. I'd fix it. And good for you for having the privilege to be able to do that. But imagine if the very reason you can't fix it is because of your skin color, because of your gender, because of the difference that you bear. That you or I have never had to bear. Just wonder about that. If you could just do that, that'd be a huge win. Ron, thank you for that invitation. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for your vulnerability and for your insights. It's been really awesome and a joy to get to spend this time with you. Right back at you, Tim. Thanks for doing these episodes and thanks for helping get the word out there. I really appreciate your work in the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. Until next time, thanks for listening.